0: Hey, it's Howie. We're rerunning one of my favorite episodes this week, an interview featuring the Philadelphia-based chef and entrepreneur Omar Tate. The episode originally ran on June 5th. More recently, Omar launched a fundraising campaign to finance the Honeysuckle Community Center, which will bring a grocery, a meat market, a cafe, library, and a supper club to Omar's West Philadelphia neighborhood, all under one roof. Omar is looking to raise $250,000 for the endeavor. With any donation of $100 or more, Omar will send a bean pie your way. We’re rerunning we the episode to spotlight Omar’s important work and his vision for his community. Please check him out and donate at www.gofundme.com/f/honeysuckle-community-center. This is Takeaway Only, a podcast about the hospitality industry in crisis. I'm Howie Kahn, and these are the stories of the people who take care of you. Today's guest is Omar Tate. Omar is the chef behind Honeysuckle, a pop-up that explores the story of blackness through food. This week's pop-up was one of Omar's most personal to date. Hear what went into it, what's next for Honeysuckle, and why you should get ready to send Omar $100 for a pie. We're back Monday with an all-new guest. Please hit subscribe so you don't miss it. Stay tuned now for Omar. Omar, hi. Hey,
1: how are you, Howie? I'm
0: okay, man. Uh, you did a pop-up yesterday. Um, these pop-ups are becoming beloved at South Philly Barbacoa. How'd it go? What did you cook? Who came out? How you feel?
1: It was... a uh... You know, this was one of the more uh, personal ones that I've done. Um, over Memorial Day weekend, um, I spent some significant time with my aunt uh, and learned a lot about my grandfather from, from her um, and learned that he was a Vietnam uh, War veteran. He didn't, he, didn't uh, he wasn't stationed in Vietnam, he was stationed in Germany. Um, so he, during that time, he kept a photo journal of his, of his experience there. Um, that It was like really poetic, really beautiful shots and um, you know, learn, learning about him and who he was. He was also a black, you know, a black rights um, activist in South Philly when he came back and raised two beautiful daughters and started a community center. So it was really an ode to him and the things that he loved and the things that he represented. So um, my, my heart, not that my heart is never, like, my, my heart's always in my, in my cooking, but it was like a real full circle moment um, for me to be making this meal and learning these things about him and then serving it to people. So um, I was very happy.
0: James James Jameson was his name.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was his name.
0: And what what prompted this this discovery into your grandfather's history now?
1: You know, um, I've been wanting to talk to my aunt for a long time about my grandfather. You know, growing up with my mom, um, she's told me a lot about him. But people experience people in in different ways, especially as family members. You know, you go to a funeral and your brother or sister could have a very different perspective or feeling towards their parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle. Um, period, and, and these things are kind of like the, the, they're talked about um, at the funeral. So um, he was—he died before I was born, and I've never gotten my aunt's perspective. So uh, this was just like the perfect time to talk to her about him, not knowing any anything that she was going to reveal to me about him. And uh, my, my mom never talked about that war experience. She she always talked about him being a Black Panther and stuff like that, but not about that war experience. And, and to me. Um, that war experience is, is incredibly necessary in the story of black, of black folks as American, you know And I've always looked at him as like this really incredible figure in my personal history as like um, an, an activist and just like a, a, a figure um, in, in my, my own personal black American history But this story situates him directly as a human in our American history Which is what my work has always been trying to um, position anyway and it was just so it was incredibly satisfying to 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 see that.
0: How did you devise a menu based on that? How does something I mean, your food's always really personal. it's It's about the experience of of blackness in America. It's um been described as black history on a plate right by uh Nerea Otieno who wrote a, an amazing article about you earlier this year I think it might have been last year by this point I have no clue what's <laughs> happening with with the passage of time but but she said she said that edible black black history so kind of adding a family layer onto it mm-hmm. um, well-
1: I think that that's the most important part. Like these personal touches are the most important part because we kind of get stuck in history, right? You know, um, as it's taught to us or how it's read or how it's presented in a very general way, especially if you're coming from school or academia, Um, it doesn't necessarily get into the nuance of of any identity, period. Like it doesn't matter who you are, black, Indian, you know, Chinese, whatever. Um, The way that we learn about our history is kind of like blanketed so that we can consume as much and, and absorb as much and learn as much about a culture in like these neat little packages, right? Um, but me learning about my grandfather um, and making this menu, I literally just asked my mom and aunt, like, yo, like, well, what did he like to eat? What were his favorite things? And, um, and then there was also a picture of him grilling uh, New York strips for soldiers um, on, on, on base, or I'm not, I'm not really sure where they were, but they were, you know, he was in the military when it happened. And um, I love playing with these notions of, uh, I understand, what people think black food is in their mind when you say, I'm going to make a black dish or I'm going to make a black meal. Um, And I'm like, well, actually we like a lot of shit, (laughs) you know? Um, And understanding this and really diving deep into my personal history or reading novels or reading literature, specifically like Zora Zora Neale Hurston or, you know, Langston Hughes, um, where they kind of like, they create whole worlds and environments with their words where you, they, you enter a space of blackness and the food is just kind of like proxy you know, to, to that. I can inject that into a dish and, and into a meal and, and represent that world as well or, or create one myself. So by, um, by asking those questions, uh, I create more layers uh, or expose more layers to an existence, which to me, um, my hope is from like linear, like heart to heart, uh, you can find the humanness in blackness, which is not always, obviously, as we can see, over, you know, what's transpired over the past two weeks, it's not always understood by people.
0: You wrote on your Instagram feed uh, that one thing you really admired your grandfather for uh, was the way he combined masculinity and tenderness. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, how do you combine those values in a moment that's about both protest and pandemic when, when we're all so vulnerable? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I don't think that I necessarily have to combine it. It's already intertwined. If, if, you're, if you're a person, everyone has those moments. Whether we choose to talk about them or not, are, you know, that, that's, that's up to us. But um, to me, it's about people recognizing that. It's specifically in Black men, you know? Um, we have to see it. I love that those photos were taken of him, hold, holding aunt like that. Um, the, the, the love note that he wrote to her where he drew a flower. Um, you know, people, people don't see that, um, or they choose not to see that from, from us. And, you know, with me writing poetry and, um, the way that I create my meals and and the way that I speak publicly about myself and what I'm feeling and, um, and what I'm thinking, uh, are are me intentionally exposing that, that tenderness, which, which doesn't devalue me as a, as a male, you know, um, and there's a, there's a stigma Again, across across cultures and, and, and ethnicities, about uh, you know tenderness and, and, and masculinity, where you're you looked down upon if you if you expose those things or express those those parts of yourself. Um, and so I, I found and learning that about him, how how important it already was in my family and in my history.
0: Um, before, you know, all the COVID shit started in, in March, you were doing these amazing honeysuckle pop-ups. You had the honeysuckle still the name of, of your pop-up, but the slant was a little different. They were in, you know, penthouses in, in New York city and it was 150 bucks a head and it was, it was fine dining. Right. And And now you're doing, you know, 15 orders for 50 bucks a set. I think there's an a la carte aspect as well, where people can kind of get what they want, which which makes total sense. Um, I'm wondering um, how much you care about the fine dining aspect right now, and whether your focus will continue to be on something more for the people going forward?
1: Well, I'll, I'll answer the second part of your question first. Uh, I am going to do both in the future. I want to do both fine dining, and I want to do more, you know, um, community-focused uh, aspects, whereas previously I wasn't super interested in doing like community, not, not, not that I wasn't interested in community. I wasn't interested in devaluing the, the, the price uh, or devaluing the work that I do um, that is worth the $300 price point um, so that uh, more, more people could eat it. And that's not to exclude people. Um, it's just for me, uh, I've worked in kitchens for 14 years, I've been a cook for 11 years. Um, And something that I've always seen um, that I wanted to see for myself was how white chefs, white male chefs, have been able to price their food at whatever price point they want, receive however however large of a profit margin from that, and then take that money and reinvest it into whatever particular interest that they have or whatever interest that their community has, and that upholds white supremacy, right? Uh, Or aids in upholding white supremacy or or upholds the, the, the capitalist... Um, system that that keeps those people in power and in, in, in places of decision-making. So I wanted to do that <laughs> with my dinner and reinvest in my community in ways that um, I haven't seen before. Those, those reinvestment um, ideas uh, centered around um, buying from Black minority producers, um, centered around buying a, a structure or buying a place that would benefit my community. Um, the hiring who i think is valuable and desirable and promoting those people and, and uh stratifying and uh, and hiring black folks at all levels um in my in my business so like if thomas keller can uh, charge you 1200 dollars for some for some wine and and I, however many courses i can do the same thing with with my work and supporting the people that i'm trying to support um capitalism has never been a a system that has supported black folks. And I wanted to use that, that system to turn that notion on its head. It it really bothered me that it still bothers me that um, oftentimes when black folks are doing stuff and they're doing stuff for for a lot of money, there seems to be this assumption that we also should be uh, donating or giving or doing something philanthropic with, with, with our time and our money. And we're the community that needs to be receiving this money the most and doing what we want, with it, the most, so that we can um, build, build up, build back up to uh, an equitable position in this country. So I was, I was in complete denial of doing any sort of like donation-based anything, like pay me, like pay me <laughs> for real. Um, and that's that's why I was doing it. Um, but now, uh, since things are are shifting, um, and there are 40 million people who are un- who are unemployed right now. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense to only focus on that. I'm still going to do that because there's still it's going to take a lot of work for people to, to uh, you know, for all of us to um, find some sort of like homeostasis. <laughs> you know, what's, what's what's uh what's going on. So um, in this time, it would be very isolating for me to continue doing that work in the way that I was doing it, um, and it would isolate a lot of people. Even even the people who were paying for dinners before are paying more uh, like just paying very close attention to their wallets. And uh, so I think that I can do both. And I think that I should do both. And I I think I should be doing both for the rest of my life.
0: One of the ideas you have surrounding doing both is, is you've put forward this, this plan, this proposal to sell bean pies this summer. A hundred bucks a pop to raise $100,000 to buy a building in West Philadelphia to start a community center, uh, which will feed people, teach people, do, do other things. Tell me about where that idea comes from. I think it's a great idea, and I can't wait to give you a hundred bucks for a bean pie. <laughs>
1: um, I mean, that, that, that idea, well, there's a couple. Obviously, like the history of like the Black Panthers and like the civil rights movement and engagements, there were several different fundraiser programs um, that exist like that. But maybe not at such a high price point, but um, the bean pie idea is directly related to the Nation of Islam and how they supported their their program. Um, But the $100 idea came about within several conversations I've had with people about selling bean pies. Initially, I was going to sell it for $10. Um, And I was going to have to (laughs) sell them for, I would would have to sell 10,000 bean pies. Specifically, I spoke to my friend, uh, Tunde Wei, and he was like, why would you do that? Like, he's like, charge, like, he's like, go, go for the, (laughs) go for the artery, charge $100, and then you sell less bean pies. He's like, you already have uh, the momentum and people already understand what you're doing. He's like, it's not about the bean pie. It's about, it's about what you're building. He's like, people will, it's an investment. And I'm like, yo, you're right. Um, then we went on to talk about how Nipsey Hussle, Nipsey Hussle did the same thing with his CDs. Um, he was selling $100 CDs, uh, mixtapes out of his trunk um, back back in LA. So, um, you know, like this sort of like spirit has always been within our community of just a uh, self-galvanized movement um, towards, towards an end goal that benefits not just, not just us, but uh, the community at large. So even before the pandemic, this was a conversation. Um, this this is a conversation I've been having since the uh, since the beginning of the new year, where I knew that I wanted a place and I wanted a space, um, and it's intertwined with the fact that uh, the the traditional restaurant as we know it is dying. It's it's pretty much dead. It was already dead, um, and we were kind of like <laughs> just walking atop its skeleton, you know, over the past like. I don't know how many, how many decades, but it has not been sustainable. And over the past five years, um, it's just been getting worse and worse and worse. And every day it's just getting more and more difficult. And, uh, this pandemic really exposed a lot of restaurants, you know, um, the, the, the really, really expensive hoity-toity joints, (laughs) you know, um, that people go to, uh, were the first ones to put up GoFundMe's because they couldn't pay their staff. So, um. I just, I just knew over the past three years that I was not going to open a, tradi- a traditional restaurant as, as we knew it.
0: Tell me about Smoked Turkey Necks in 1980s Philadelphia because I think that's one of the antecedents for why your community center and restaurant needs to exist why, where it's going to exist.
1: So that came from uh, the, the MOVE bombing that happened on May 13th, 1985. My my family, they were connected to several people who were organized with, with MOVE. Uh, my uncle Harold knew... Uh, uh, Mumia Abu Jamal and all this stuff. You know, if, you, if y'all don't know who Mumia is, he was a—he is an accused cop killer um, who's serving um, now. I think a life sentence. I think his death sentence has been repealed. Um, but they—they they said he was a cop killer. It's been disputed whether he did it or not. Um, but you know, there was a lot of civic and, and civil unrest in the '70s, '60s, and, and, and '80s, um, where basically the, the, the cops were basically they they acted like a gang or a militia against um black folks throughout the city Mm -hmm. um and culminated in a moment um on may 13th where the city of philadelphia ordered a a bomb um to be dropped on i guess like the stronghold of move which was situated right in a community um in west philadelphia on, on osage avenue and so you know uh i was born exactly uh man 363 days after that event occurred um and i i I really feel a spiritual connection to things that have happened before me um there's something about being in the belly of a mother who's situated in that in that sort of thing and like obviously hearing those kinds of conversations and stuff so like i don't know i I felt like i was born into this turmoil um so I, i wanted to create a create a dish uh that that examined that um and so that's, that's where it came from. The, the, the turkey that comes from like language or jargon around like jive turkey and how turkey has been used like colloquially and, 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 uh, in black communities throughout the 70s and throughout activism and stuff. Um, the, the smoke part, I situated the, the dish. Well, I smoked the turkey themselves, but then I situated the dish on, on hay that I set on fire and smoked as the diner was eating it so that they smelled that, that, that smoke coming up from the plate while they looked at a black like mat piece of turkey um, it was kind of car- carnal, you know, and that's what I wanted because that whole, that whole thing was carnal. They, they, killed, five, they killed seven children um, and, and, arrested, and arrested two people and called them terrorists after having a bomb um, dropped on them. So part of the beauty of what I do with Honeysuckle as, as an art piece is I'm able to create these meals and have these conversations and whether people find them to be beautiful, pretty or not is not the point. Um, the point is to ingest uh, the truth.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to thank you for creating that dish, first of all. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many tasting menu dinners I've sat through where someone's trying to tell the story of, of the hillside and the goats eating the flowers. And like, <laughs> it does, it tastes lovely, man. Like goats who eat, eat flowers for their entire lives are, are delicious. But there's no story there. And it's always offended me as a journalist and as a writer. And as someone who's studied that craft to hear chefs say, we're telling stories, it's like a caption. It's not, that's not, that's not a story really. I mean, you know, if you get into the geology deeply or, or the sort of earth sciences deeply, then maybe it's approaching a story, right? But you're, you're telling the story of a major metropolitan police department bombing a neighborhood block, setting it on fire uh, burning 60-something homes to ashes, leaving a couple hundred people homeless, and killing children. There is an important way food can tell stories, and that, that's how to do it. Right. That's right.
1: it. Yeah, I mean, that, it's funny you mentioned this, you know, goats and flowers. Um, I, started, I started creating dishes like this because uh, I've always wanted to make food like that but every time I saw it on chef's table or I saw it at the restaurant where I was working at, I'm like, this is not my story. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not rural. I'm, I'm not going to be able to backpack in Italy. You know, I'm not going to be able to do any things or, or, or <laughs> take months off and stodge at some random ass farm somewhere, you know, and pick flowers myself. And like, I, I, I couldn't do no more. I was never going to go forage, you know? Um, but I always wanted to create food like that. And so I had to figure out what my flowers were and, you know, both, Beautifully and not so beautifully all the time, my flowers just look different.
0: Yeah, I mean, stories that move people have tension. They, ha- they have tension. They have a lesson. They're, there's evidence of change in, in the stories. I mean, you're, you're making a tasting menu that's about life and, and death, you're doing a tasting menu where survival's a question, it's not a right. Mm-hmm so yeah. uh, you know i will sell a lot of bean pies <laughs> a thousand bean pies that's that's that's, the goal. that's that's a that's that's a hittable bar
1: right i think it's totally doable
0: are you are you amping up for next week's pop-up are you committing to do one of these a week or is it kind of when you have the energy and, and the resources
1: um the most amazing thing about uh COVID and and me kind of losing everything or at least I, at least i thought that i lost everything um, what I did gain was ultimate autonomy, and I can do whatever the fuck I want. So if I'm not ultimate
0: gonna, autonomy, ding.
1: <laughs> right. True. Um, and, and, and that's that's a really amazing thing. You know, no one's scheduling my life for me, and uh, it's it's a kind of freedom that I've never felt before. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm going to do it next week. Uh, I'm going to do the same menu next week. Um, but but week to week, depending upon what's going on in my life, uh, I'm, I'm either going to do it or I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not committed to anything. And that's the most freeing thing that I've probably felt in a long time.
0: You know, I, th- I thought we were living this very day-by-day existence during COVID when we were just kind of all waiting and seeing what this pandemic would do to us, was gonna do to our industry. Um, and, and now it almost feels like we're living this second-to-second existence, not knowing what's gonna erupt on on any given street, not knowing who's gonna be arrested, not knowing what's gonna get set on on fire where are you feeling on the vulnerability scale right now with what's going on security wise in this country
1: oh more, more more vulnerable than ever it feels like, like like every day is a new year you know like i don't know what people are going to be like or how cops are going to react um it, it feels like especially in philly um like we're in the middle of a civil civil war you know um at night i hear the helicopters and, and, and sirens and, um, I mean, those things aren't very new to me in general, but, uh, people were, people were, uh, setting off fireworks and shooting guns. And I can't tell which is which. And, uh, you know, during the day when these protests happen and I see people, you know, <laughs> strapped up in riot gear, um, against people in bandanas and <laughs> and raised fists. Um, it's, it's very, I wouldn't say it's unsettling to me because I feel like I've been being, I've been being prepared for this moment my, my entire life. You know, <laughs> um, My mom has always talked about it. But something something that really did make me kind of unsettled was when even she, through all of her teaching and, and, and tutelage of this moment for, throughout my entire life, was like, I never thought that I would see this ever again. And so I feel terribly for her and terribly for the generation that, that thought that they that they marched against, against this, and I don't think anyone was naive enough to think that uh you know the world had changed, but maybe we wouldn't see this sort of just this this sort of violence ever again. Um, the last time there was a riot here in Philadelphia was 1967. So much has changed then, uh, but not really.
0: You wrote a poem the other day, you, you post poetry, you make zines, there's, there's a lot of other art that goes into your life and, uh, you know, comes out of your existence besides food. The poem is called, Have You Ever Heard a, a Siren Before? I was wondering if you'd read it.
1: Yeah, I gotta, do I have it? <laughs> have you ever heard a siren before? Have you ever gasped your body into shivers for fear of the sort of anyone you might know, uh, blaring out their final wail? Have you ever heard a siren in your living room, down your hallway, upstairs and down, into your unfinished basement? Does it ripple the still waters of your toilet bowl, peel your peeling paint, or darken the brown stain on your your ceiling, right below your tub from years of a leak you finally afforded to fix? Does it rattle your walls morning, noon, night? Have you ever heard a siren? Does it sound like heaven or hell to you, inhale or exhale for you? Does it clench or release your jaw, of your chest? Does your heart sprint, sprint, sprint? Have you ever heard a siren before? Chase like cats in an alley, dice games, cash, pop wheelies, jump rope, tonka tanks, army men, basketball game, football jersey, wave cap. Have you ever heard of a black child? Do they sound like pop music? Oops, they did it again. Poison, molly, percocet. Have you ever waited like a Karen? Do sirens quench you when you finally hear them? Do you gulp down red, white, and blue? Do you burp stars? Have you ever even worn stripes? They wrap around your body like bars. They drag your feet. They feel like sandpaper against your skin, like a cot on the floor. They're cold. They feel like you ain't even do nothing in the first place. And the, and the title of it is Apple Pie.
0: It's powerful.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's this duality in, the, in that poem where, you know, uh, I know that a lot of people haven't heard Simons like this, and I, and I always have um, growing up. Um, they, sound, they sound different now, but not, not unfamiliar and uh those those pieces where you know i mentioned like the interior of a space uh are, are not just my home but lots of people's homes that i've been to you know of, of, of struggling people
0: I, I know you're posting up in philly with your mom right now what's for dinner tonight you know i don't really know uh i just
1: got a, a bunch of um, mustard greens and and turnips uh, from a farmer friend of mine who's who delivering in the city who just hit me up and was like, "Yo, oh, do you want this stuff? <laughs> so I'm probably going to cook some of that um, and go into the cabinets and see what's there. Uh, when I when I cook for myself, I mostly make greens right now. I've been making <laughs> greens for the past three months just because they're just so... There's something about them, you know, stew greens. There's something about them that really uh, grounds me but also charges me, and it feels nourishing, and it feels... It feels like it deserves to be shared. They, ex- they extend, you know, so um, they're they're easy to freeze.
0: I've been doing a lot of greens too. Uh, March March and April for me were were largely just big pots of greens.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's awesome. We tell me about your card of yams dish. Yeah,
1: um, like I mentioned earlier, I uh, I read a lot of literature um, <clears throat> and one of the like the, the, the more seminal works in um, black literature is Invisible Man um, by Ralph Ellison. And uh, the book is about the, the the title, the title character is Invisible Man. He's unnamed um, traveling, traveling away from himself. He left the South and moved into like Har- Harlem Renaissance era Harlem and uh, lived in a dorm in the YMCA. Uh, was trying to uh, find like an air of self-importance and, joining several different movements and being swayed in many, many directions. Um, but at one point in the book, he, he's very confused and leaves the, um, the YMCA and, and, and bolts down, down the avenue and uh, runs into a Southern man selling yams or sweet potatoes off of a cart and they're hot. And uh, he asks for one and he gives it to him and it's simply uh, served to him with a little bit of butter and he eats it and he just feels so like replenished in that moment Um, and it sends him back to Georgia, back home in his mind and in his body. And uh, me having like left Philadelphia and moved to New York, um, there's anyone who moves to New York from some other place is trying to become something more than himself. And um, I spent many years doing that and so I really resonated with that moment. Um, And I kind of had a moment like that myself um, in New Orleans, when I, um, I went to this event called Gumbo Jubilee that was put on by a man named Dr. Howard Conyers. And, and, and uh, his father grows sweet potatoes in South Carolina, um, which, which just so happens to be ancestrally where my folks are from. And it was the sweetest, most beautiful thing that I'd ever put in my mouth at that time. Um, when I saw it, I, I saw they were just dry roasted. There was nothing. There was no oil. There was no salt. There was no nothing. Um, and they were being slow roasted over coals. And when I walked, um, up to them, I could see the sugar caramelizing on the outside of the potato. And so he gave it to me. Um, and I ate it and it tasted like a candy yam, just all on its own. And I was like, what the hell is up with these potatoes? And I I felt like they transformed me. Um, so when I asked, uh, Dr. Connors about it, he told me that his father, um, got the seed in a an in a, in exchange with someone who um, died not, not long after the seed was given to him. Um, it was payment for a car or a truck or something. And um, so he started growing them. And I learned that that seed is quite possibly as old and hadn't been changed um, and is as old as Antebellum, South Carolina. And I was like, that's why it transformed me, you know? Um, I ate something that's traveled almost... 150 years you know um so i got back to new york and a couple of months later i drove all the way back down from new york to south carolina to pick up a whole bunch of potatoes from his father and and serve them um at my dinner as this individual potato that that resonated with me in the same way that um it was resonant with the the character in the Invisible man um, where i felt like eating that potato was like a spiritual homecoming for me
0: Another important dish. Another important, <laughs> another important story.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely jazzed it up. I, um, I cooked them in a, in a sorghum molasses syrup with some spices uh, for a long time. with a very low heat, so they absorbed all of that flavor. Um, I, I took them out and uh, let them... No, I, actually, I'm sorry, I didn't take them out. I let them cool down in that syrup, and then once they were cooled down, um, and absorb, reabsorbed that moisture, I took them out and reduced that syrup um, down, way, way, way down, and mounted them with butter and served, served that uh, that butter syrup molassesy sauce on top of the potatoes um, after I, I charred the potatoes over coals. Um, and then I just garnished it with sea salt. So I served that potato like that, but the very first time I served it, I served um, that version, and then just the simply roasted version side by side, so people could get the, uh, the, the version that I had initially, which was just the potato itself.
0: Omar, our show's called Takeaway Only. I'm wondering what your big takeaway is from trying to sustain Honeysuckle and trying to sustain yourself during this time.
1: My, my biggest takeaway is that it's not just me. It's not, it's, it's not about myself. Um, even, even with all the tension and, and, and division um, in our nation, I, I, I find... That we are definitely in this together, um, as as a national community, uh, it's difficult for me to reconcile what's happening right now um, and what's been happening right now, or not right now, but what's been happening. Period, um, concentrated within these past three months, um, conjectured with our, our entire history, but um, it is impossible for us to uh, to see any sort of progress or change. If we' we're, if we're continuing to um, focus on tribalism and, and um, I don't know how to overcome that, but my, my takeaway is to learn how to do that um, and hopefully I'm not I'm not necessarily optimistic but uh, I mean this election maybe maybe that can happen, but my <laughs> my heart my heart wants it, but my mind says that's probably not gonna
0: happen. Oh man, let's vote. <laughs> let's get let's get everybody registered to vote. Pass out bean pies in, in line at the polls. I would totally do that. I'll, I'm, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> call me. Down. Call me. I'll do it with you. That'd be awesome. Omar, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your work. I appreciate you.
1: Thank you, man. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Takeaway Only is produced by Casey Kahn, Rob Corso, and me, Howie Kahn, for Free Time Media. Our logo is by Reynold Philippe at b Music by John Palmer. Special thanks to Kristen Millar, Antoine Ricardieu, and Raphael Weil. We're back next week. This is Takeaway Only.